Let's turn to John chapter 15. I was really hoping to uh, complete this uh, chapter before next week, and we will do that. I know that because I did it last night. We did finish our study here in John chapter 15. But as I considered the, uh, the topic that we're dealing with today, if, if the world hate you, you know, I thought about the season, and I thought about how The world, in the sense of what we're going to discover about it today, is so adamantly opposed to anything that is, quote-unquote, Christian. You know, for a time there, we were, we were told that we, were, we shouldn't go and say anything about, you know, Merry Christmas or this or that, you know. And, you know we consider it like a, like a mild attack, you know, it's no big deal, it's, you know, we live in a country where we can say what we want, a lot, and a lot of people actually do, and a lot of it is not nice, you know. But uh, it's deeper than that. The hatred for Christ is deeper than that. The hatred for the people who love Jesus with all their heart is, is, is deeper than the things that we say about Jesus or Christmas or Easter or whatever. And Jesus is saying all of these things to his disciples as he's just about ready to go to the cross. It, 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 we're talking about not only hours, but even minutes. And he has prepared his disciples from the moment that they entered into the room for the Passover supper back in chapter 13. And it talks about the love that he's had for them from the very beginning. How he washes their feet and says, you know, a servant is not greater than his master. If I've washed your feet, you need to wash each other's feet. You need to lower yourself. And he talked about how he was coming again. And he offered to them this, this, this statement of hope. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm coming again. I've given you a mission. I've given you a calling. I've given you a work. He talks about his spirit, not leaving them alone, not leaving them fatherless. Talks about his love. And as we saw in verse 17, he said, These things I commend you, that you love one another. And on that note, he goes on to say, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. 
Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And you shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The dark shadow of the cross loomed deeper and grew more ominous now as Jesus moved ever closer to Calvary. But it was in the depth of his previous statements to his disciples. But I have called you friends, he said. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, he said. That whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he said. The depth of his previous statements to his disciples, caring and loving words for his disciples and for us, that the cross which would express all the hatred of the world, the flesh, and the devil toward him, though intended for them as well, would not deter them from expressing the love of Christ toward one another. And to get a sense of all of that, you go back to verse 16 for a moment. You have not chosen me, he said, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And remember how this, the beginning of this particular chapter began with, with, with him saying, I am the true vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. That connection is so necessary to understand about bearing fruit here. We talked about it over the last few weeks. But it is here, in this passage, verses 16 and 17, that Jesus gave them a, a divine initiative. An initiative defined and determined by the Lord himself. He is the Lord, by the way. He is the Lord of the first move. That's the initiative of Jesus. If you look at verse 16, it says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. He was the one who sought out the disciples. He knew each one of them, knew all about them as each one was attracted into the sphere of his life. They weren't chosen because they were rich and famous, because they were educated and socially elevated, because they were ingenious and influential. In the most normal cases, by the way, students usually chose their own rabbis. Not this time. He chose them. That certainly makes Jesus' rabbinic school much greater than that of the rabbis of his time or of any time. 
Jesus engineered and orchestrated the events of their lives for the express purpose of bringing them within the gravitational pull of his influence. Think about that for just a moment. Mere fishermen, a tax collector, and who knows what else these 12 were. Then all of a sudden one day, listening and hearing Jesus speak, and realizing the great authority by which he spoke, and the things that he did, All of a sudden, they're just following this rabbi. And then with the greatest of purpose and forethought, Jesus chose them. And amazingly, as we learned last time, he chose them to be friends. He chose them to be friends. And I think you would agree with me that he could have chosen anyone he liked from the millions on the world's rolls of the time. He could have chosen anybody. But he chose them. And he chose us. We don't know why. I thought about the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 7 is not anything that will come up here, but I know that when you, when you consider these words... It really shows us the heart of the Lord, the heart of the Father as well as the Son. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto the fathers, as the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Nothing that we could do that would give him the reason to choose us. But he did. He chose those who have responded to the call of his love. That was his divine initiative. He chose us. We didn't choose him. Secondly, came his divine intention. Because he says there, in that same text, and I have ordained you. Jesus ordained, the word is etheka in, in the Greek. Jesus ordained them to go and to bring forth fruit and that their fruit would remain. And to be ordained, that word there means to be placed, to sent, or appointed. And in this passage, that word describes their special position and assignment as apostles. Because the word apostles means that they are the called out ones to be sent. With a very special work, very special mission, as it were. And in this passage, that's what he's saying. And even though the darkness of the shadow of Calvary emerged across this message, so did the shining light of Pentecost. And the reason I bring that up, here's the darkness of the cross, here is the light of Pentecost. The fact of the matter is Pentecost hasn't happened yet. 
It's still a few weeks, even a couple of months down the road. The fact of the matter is, those apostles, <coughs> those disciples, were safe in the knowledge of their calling by Jesus himself. And even though there was going to be all kinds of chaos taking place, things that they wouldn't understand, and as I mentioned last time, Peter goes off and he curses and, and then denies the Lord. Judas Iscariot is already gone, but he'd eventually hang himself. The other disciples would just split in fear. And yet they would be present in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room. Their mission wasn't over. Their, their mission was just beginning. And they needed these words of Jesus. These 11 were specially chosen and ordained by Jesus. And you can add Paul to that mix because he'd be the 12th, born out of due season. But these 11 were specially chosen and ordained by Jesus to occupy this once-in-a-lifetime role in the church. Once-in-a-lifetime role. What I mean by that is there were only 12 apostles. There were no apostles ordained after that. So sometimes when I look at, you know, at, at registries of churches and stuff, they, they have this apostle and that apostle. I said, where did they come from? Nice title to have, but that, that's, you know, that puts you, what, over others? Or what? I mean, even Peter himself said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fellow elder with you. I'm not above you. And yet uh, one particular church has made him, uh, you know, the pope. Kind of interesting. He wouldn't have liked that. He wouldn't have liked the, he wouldn't have liked the fact that, you know, in, in Rome today, there's a, there's a statue of Peter and his toe's been worn out because people kiss it. Yeah. Toe's worn out. He's toeless. Well, the big toe, anyway. Where'd that come from? Peter talks about humbling ourselves, even in leadership. This was a once-in-a-lifetime role for those apostles. Some would be better known than others. Peter was known pretty well. John, Paul later would come. But all of them were appointed. It didn't make one's ministry greater than the other. It just said Peter was the one that did certain things, and Paul was the one that did certain things, John and James and whatnot. But they were all appointed. And I'm sure in whatever calling that each one had, they were going to fulfill that calling because they were especially chosen by Jesus. And their fruit would remain. The enemy of their souls could not uproot God's vine. <clears throat> Is there anybody really that could uproot God's vine? We talk about the, the branches being attached to the vine. Well, that's where we get our nourishment and that's where the fruit is born for the kingdom of God. And earlier on, we talked about those branches that were disconnected from the vine. Well, they would just be picked up and thrown into the fire. But could the enemy of our souls uproot God's vine? I mean, take Peter, for example. On the day of Pentecost, he would reach 3,000 souls. 
And by the way, they were Jewish souls. And on the day of Pentecost, he would reach those 3,000. A few years later, he would travel to Caesarea to reach a Gentile, uh, one Gentile, Cornelius. And the doors of the church would open wide to the world. Now it's Jew and Gentile. By the way, is that fruit still remaining? Hello? Yes? Okay, it's almost 10. I know it's a little warm in here, but hey, I got to do whatever I can to keep you awake, okay? I'm not going to do a song and dance, but I am going to do whatever I can to keep you awake. So listen, that fruit has remained. The true fruit would remain because it was produced not by Peter, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. And not by anyone in flesh, no matter how gifted, influential, or prominent they might be. This would also be said of the Apostle Paul, the one apostle born out of due season. Think about what is said to Ananias, the one who had to deal with Paul after the, uh, after the meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. When he says to, uh, the Lord says to him on, in Acts 9 verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Speaking of Paul, which was at that time Saul of Tarsus. Saul who was persecuting Christians. Saul who was killing Christians and loving it. Then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says, go thy way, says to Ananias, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. May I ask you, did he do that? That's what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. And to the very end, he fulfilled his ministry. Was it because he, because, just because he was the smartest and he was a rabbi and he had all these, and this, and that. no, it's because the Holy Spirit <clears throat> used him and guided him and guarded him and protected him for all of those years. Paul would later tell the Ephesians elders at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. I bring this up for a reason. <clears throat> Even though we see how Paul's life extended through the book of Acts, we know that later on he would die for Christ. But he says here in verse 28, Take heed therefore, Acts 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the, all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears." It was not an, ad, an automatic calling to the, to the 11 with Jesus in, in, in John 15. It was not so much an, of an automatic calling to Paul in, in, in Acts chapter 9. What we find is that we are not to take for granted the work that has been entrusted to us of bearing fruit. We need to take heed. We need to be watching. We need to be watchmen. We need to be discerning. We need to use the gifts of the Spirit. Because in these days and times, we are dealing with all kinds of spirits. Saying all kinds of things. Saying enough things that sound right, and then adding all kinds of other things that don't sound right and shouldn't sound right because they're not right. And too many people are believing it just because somebody says something a little bit right. The Bible says we better know that it's all supposed to be right. So we're not to take for granted the work that has been entrusted to us of bearing fruit, but always 
remembering the source and power is not ours. It's the Lord's. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then think about this for a minute. Because this applies to us as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. Listen to what Paul says about those that God has chosen. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I'm here to tell you, we're all in that uh, particular uh, club. I don't think I'm alone in telling you. I look in the mirror every day and I think, oh, Lord, you've chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised God, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. To bring to nothing what man thinks is something. That no flesh should glory in his presence. I, I have to tell you, these apostles would be flabbergasted at what man has done in raising them up as saints above all. When I check the word of God and I check what it says in the letters of Paul to the churches, he says to the saints in Rome, to the saints. What, is he talking about statues or is he talking about people in the church? Saints who are set apart for the work presently in life and in true living the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 17 of our text, Jesus challenged his disciples to obey his command that they love one another. We can consider this another key to abounding. We talked about this last week, abounding as we abide. The key is this, duplicating our friendship with Jesus. Duplicating our friendship with Jesus. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. In the most Christian sense, friends of a friend should be friends. In the most Christian sense, friends of a friend should be friends. Are you getting that? Okay. I want you to consider the analogy of the spokes of a wheel. As the spokes draw near to the hub of the wheel they are actually drawing closer to one another. Are you, are, you, are you picturing that? You know, from the hub out, you know, the, the, the spokes go a little bit separated from the others, but as you go in, they're closer. In effect, then, the closer that we get to Jesus the closer we will get to one another. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to one another. That means that the closer we get to Jesus, the less there is of us. The closer we get to Jesus, pride goes out the door or out the window. It's not about us anymore, is it? It's about Jesus and about others. 
This season, you'll have Christmas cards come to you that say, Joy! J-O-Y! And there's really only one way to combine those letters to say joy. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, and then you. It's the only way to have true joy. Because I don't know about yoj. I don't think that's an English word. But a lot of people want yoj. Because it starts with them. And somewhere down the line. Or ijo. Which is always me and then Jesus and then others. No you can't do that. And geo. Which is you know Jesus me and others. No. It only works. With Jesus, others, and you. Then you. Lastly, you. John would later write in 1 John chapter 3, 23 and 24. Many, many years later, Jesus, uh, John would write, and this is his commandment. Notice, this is his commandment. <laughs> Remember we talked about that last week, that Jesus said, this is my commandment. Well, this is his commandment. It was another, it, it, think of how closely this is to what we're reading in, in John th uh, 15. <clears throat> this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. What is that? Abiding. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he has given us and as we get into chapter 16, that's all we're going to talk about. <clears throat> and Paul would add this in Romans chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, as he's describing some of the, some of the virtues of the believer in Jesus Christ, or some of the gifts, actually, of the, of the believer in Jesus Christ. He says, or he that exhorts, uh, exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And notice verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. The word dissimulation literally means disguise. Let love be without disguise. Some of your translations may say hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy is a word that means putting on a mask. To some extent it's hiding behind a mask. But let love be something that is not disguised, hidden. Covered. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kind, kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor preferring one another. That is something I don't know that happens any longer. Do we honor people today? In honor preferring one another. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to others. Here's the thing though. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we die to ourselves. The more that we can actually take the words of Paul in, in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Because you see, you have to die to yourself to let Christ live in you. And he says, I am crucified with Christ. That's the picture of his death. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it is with this understanding that we're able to, to love in spite of the world's hatred toward us. 
That's the whole setup here for verses 18 to 27. It is with the understanding that we are to love in spite of the world's hatred toward us. Jesus said, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. By the way, between verse 18 and verse 25, the word hate or hated is mentioned seven times. It's actually eight times in the scriptures, but one of them is, is an implied, you know, it's in the italics, which means it's not in the original text, but it's implied that Jesus was talking about that hatred. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. He said that when he had washed the feet of his disciples. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Because they know not him that sent me. Now who's he speaking about? He's speaking about the religious leaders of Israel. We see that in context here. We'll see it in just a moment, even in an even greater way. But once again, Jesus is looking ahead. He sees ahead to Calvary, where he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. He sees where he was to experience all the hatred and malignity that man, triggered and stimulated by demonic power, could heap upon him. Jesus knew how his earthly ministry would end. And I dare to say that he knew how it would end even when he was brought into this world as a child. And, it, you know, that's a, that's a God thing, you know. But how could he not know? And still he would learn. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's, that's an interesting statement. If Jesus, and I think it's there for this main reason, if Jesus could learn, we should learn. By every experience that we face in this life as we look to the coming of Jesus. He knew how his earthly ministry would end. He came from heaven knowing that he would meet rejection on every side. He knew that. Coming to die for those who hated him and would trample upon the love and grace of God as seen in his love. The fact of the matter is before we came to the Lord, we did not live for him. The Bible calls that hatred. Some, some would argue and say, I didn't hate God that way. I mean, I just didn't much love him. <laughs> really? Okay, well, that's hatred. You didn't put him... Above all things, therefore, you know, he kind of. See, when, when God defines hatred in the scriptures, you know, he who hates his father and mother, didn't mean to hate them. He, he talks about how if, if, if we put them down in a position where they're not honored, 
as father and mother. You hate them. But he has to be first. That's why he said, he who does not, uh, you know, hate father and mother and love God above all. So it's all in the context of the use of this, of this particular word. But knowing these things, knowing that the world hated him, knowing that he came and would be rejected on every side, knowing these things did not prevent him or keep him from fulfilling his intended mission, which he makes clear for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. Makes it very clear. So in the last section of chapter 15, I'm having to move on here because of time, but in the last section of chapter 15, Jesus used the words hate or hatred, as I mentioned earlier, seven times in the text. And that is certainly significant in light of the hatred of true believers in Jesus Christ in our day and time. It is sad that some people have supposed that it was the program of the church to make the world better by the church's mere presence in the world. There's even people today who, have something, who believe something called dominion theology. They're, they're, they're the ones who are the reconstructionists. They're the, they're the ones that are saying, listen, listen, the church is here. We're going to make this world better. We're eventually going to make this world better so that we can present it to Jesus perfect. That's just the height of arrogance for anyone in the church to say that. Because all that Jesus ever said was, in the last days, man, things are going to be terrible. Never implies that the church is going to make the world better before he comes. It has to be worse. Because it has to be shown that man cannot do it. But God has always had the plan. But 2,000 years of preaching the gospel, think about this. 2,000 years of preaching the gospel and the world remains today the most wicked of all possible worlds. And it is more evil now than ever before. But people forget what Jesus said in this text. He says, you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Yeah, you ever heard that phrase, man, that thing is out of this world? That's about you. You guys are out of this world. Not in a weird sense, but in a good sense. Because Jesus said it. You're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. It should get us to think, well, what's the world then? Ah, that's coming. Don't go anywhere. Please remember that we began our Christian walk and our life by choosing the one whom the world rejects. But then we learn, wait a minute, we didn't choose him, he chose us first. He chose us first. Nonetheless, we have chosen the one that the world rejects. We, are, we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ by faith. The world doesn't understand that. It has a very, a very common way of understanding what faith is and hope is and what love is. 
that none of them can reach the mark of what Christian hope, faith, and love is. We can trust in someone or something for a little while in the world, and something will cause us to want to trust something else and stop trusting them. But that doesn't work. That kind of faith doesn't work with God. We trust him, we trust him to the end. And by the way, we can because he's perfect. By the way, we can because he's just. By the way, we can because he has never let us down. We have a hope that will never turn hopeless. We have a hope because all of his promises are true. And the kind of love that God has given to us, not only to share with one another, but more importantly to share with him, is a love that knows no bounds. We need to come to understand what that means in each and every one of our daily lives. But that is why, that is why John would write much later in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How, how, how straightforward is that? If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we need to understand what the world is. Because by, 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 by just checking these things out, we are actually in the world, aren't we? And remember that the scripture says, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And then Jesus says, you're out of this world. All right. Then he goes on and he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. By the way, those three things, that's what got man in trouble in the garden. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They've been around a long time. He says, those things are not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So, to get the full understanding then of what Jesus meant by the world... I want you to consider this particular short, simple, and sweet definition. Well, maybe not sweet, but short and simple anyway. The world is the order or system of humanity that has turned its back on God. I, I just try to sum it up and the best way possible. The order or system of humanity that has turned its back on God. You cannot be of the world and of God. You have to be one or the other. That's why John was so strong in that statement. All that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. He says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Just not there. And that's why James also was so strong in the church in his statement as I shared last time. And I'll just give you verses, verse 4 of James 4. You, you adulterers and adulteresses, he says. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world. A friend of the system that has turned his back on God, got it, is the enemy of God. Wow. Shouldn't we be careful then in the world as we walk? When it comes right down to it, the cost of following Jesus is persecution. 
And that because we stand for the things of God and we love the things of God while the world loves darkness and hates it when, when their dark deeds, dark deeds are exposed. We, we actually saw that many, many moons ago when we were back in John chapter 3. I don't remember how long ago that was, a long time. But back in John chapter 3 where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in that particular chapter and he says in John 3 verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. They want anybody to correct them. That's why a lot of people today would rather just, you know, they look at you and you come with them a, with a Bible or a, or a track in your hand. And say, oh, man, get away from me, man. You're, you're a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper or an hallelujah or whatever. You know, they got all kinds of names for us. That's okay. I like them all. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought, produced in God. So the question I have for you all today is this. Are we willing to pay the price for loving God? Are we willing to pay the price for loving Jesus? The disciples had been taught by Jesus openly that one day persecution would come. He told them a number of times. I'm only going to give you a couple here. Matthew chapter 5 in the, in the, uh, in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, notice this, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, he said, and be exceeding glad. Man, rejoice. He said, man, I don't want to rejoice. Man, they're coming, cutting me down, cutting you down. No, that's okay. Rejoice. You know why? He says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. This is not about what you're going to get here. Be careful with all those people that say, oh, listen, God wants you to have this, and God wants you to have that, God wants you to have all this. I don't care for that. So I'll just care for heaven. Eternity. Streets of gold. There I could take my chisel and, you know, I'm just kidding. Jackhammer. We won't need that because we're not going to look at all that stuff. We're going to look at him. He says, for so persecuted they the prophets which are before you. Man, if they persecuted the prophets, they're going to persecute you. But that's okay. Rejoice. Matthew 5, same chapter, but down in verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Folks, this is one of the hardest things for Christians to do. Man, you've got to, you've got to get on your knees. You've got to pray, Lord Jesus, give me this heart. Because right now, the heart that's in me is pounding. Why don't you go out there and punch somebody? Huh? Am I, am I being honest here? I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. Because you see, that is the hallmark 
of the kingdom of God. That is what chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew are all about. This is the heart of the believer in Jesus Christ. How many times in the Gospel of John have we read that the religious establishment not only opposed Jesus, but they sought to kill him? <laughs> Interestingly enough, seven times in the Gospel of John. I'm not going to go all through all of them. I'm not going through any of them, actually. Just letting you know there are seven of them. And talking about the religious establishment, this is what Jesus said of, of them in verse 22 of our text in John 15. He said, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. What is he first referring to? The things that he said. And he spoke, remember, in the authority of God the Father. He spoke with such authority. They said, who is this man that speaks with such great authority? He said, if I hadn't come and spoken, they, they had not sinned. They go on as they are, you know, doing what they're doing. But now they have no cloak for their sin. They have no excuse. They've heard me. And they heard by the authority. They heard by which, you know, by whose authority I was speaking. I have no excuse. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If they said they hate me by the, because of the things I said, they're hating the father because he sent me. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned. Which means now he's referring to the things that he did. The miracles. John records seven very important miracles as, as the seven key miracles of, of the work of Jesus Christ. And practically each time, they rose up. How about that time they healed the, the layman? And what did they do? They condemned Jesus for blasphemy. They condemned him for, for healing on the Sabbath. Don't forget that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Because he's going to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. It's his Sabbath. And he gave Sabbath rest to us. Boy, how we've misinterpreted that. And how they did, too. But if I, if I had not done among them the works, which no other man, they just gone on, they had not sinned. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Because they would not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They kept saying, you're not the Messiah. So they made him less than what he really was. And in so doing that, they both hated him and the Father. But this cometh to pass that the word, pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And we'll get to that in a moment. But these same religious leaders might have pleaded ignorance before Jesus came, but now they were without excuse, as Jesus made it clear. They were living in open rebellion against God. The lesson is that without knowledge, I'm sorry, take it back. The lesson is that with knowledge, with knowledge comes responsibility. With knowledge comes responsibility, and all of us are without excuse. All of us. Take note also that to hate Jesus and to make him less than God is to hate the Father. Read Isaiah 53 tonight. 
I know that most people will say, well, that, that's a resurrection verse, that's a, an Easter, you know, season. No, it's Christmas. It really is. So it tells us why Jesus came. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. There are actually two psalms, prophetic in nature, that sum up this predicament of the religious leaders who sinned in this hatred. The first psalm is Psalm 35, verses 11 and 12, where the psalmist says, False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. This, of course, ties very clearly into the the, uh, uh, trial of Jesus, where There were false accusers. There were those false accusers actually there before Pontius Pilate as well, stirring up the crowds of the people. And then it says in verse 12, they rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But the most important passage is Psalm 109, verses 1 through 5, where the psalmist says, Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me. Here it is. Fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries. But I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. How... Sadly appropriate, that is, to the hearts of the religious leaders of Israel in the days of Jesus. And yet Jesus wants us to know that there's victory over the world. And that victory comes in what he says in the last two verses here. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father. He shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So take note of the mission of the Holy Spirit. It is to testify of Jesus. Great mission, isn't it? But then take note as well of the believer's mission. What is it? Same thing. It is to testify of Jesus. That is our mission. That is our purpose, that is our calling, that is our ministry, to testify of Jesus Christ. And this is certainly a reminder that we need then to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. And why? Because the Holy Spirit will show us all truth. We're going to talk a lot about that in chapter 16, right after we get past the holidays here. But nonetheless, keep reading. The Holy Spirit is going to show us all truth because the world is going to hate us, it is going to persecute us, and we'll need His strength to carry on. Folks, we have seen already over the last couple of years what ISIS has done to Christians in the Middle East, beheading them, and and using the the media to, to terrorize. But God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Don't be afraid 
In other words, folks, don't be afraid. Do not fear. These are the words, not mine. These are God's words. These are Christ's words to us. Let not your heart be troubled. I close with the words of John 14. And fill what I began a few minutes ago. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He said that to those 11 disciples. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let what you will see in the next few hours. Well, they saw and they ran. But Jesus knew something else. Jesus knew that he would rise again from the dead. Jesus knew that they would gather together in fear and he would show up and he would just appear in their, in, in their midst and he would say, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. Isn't that wonderful? I'll tell you what, there's, there's, there's better things in the Bible than, than what Hollywood could ever produce. And Jesus just shows up, man, he says, hey, don't be afraid. <laughs> and he says, where's Thomas? Thomas, come here. You were doubting, but here's my hands. Here's my side. We don't even know if he ever got there. All he said was, my Lord and my God. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Well, the world has an end coming. But if you believe in Jesus, you don't. Amen? Y'all understand what I meant? I hope you did.